Welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, where we bring you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. We'll be taking a short break from podcasting while we're busy running Hay Festival 2022. So this is your last episode until early June, when we will be back with an exciting new series. Thank you for listening so far. You can watch and listen to tons more Hay Festival events by signing up to Hay Player for just £15 for a year's subscription at hayfestival.org. We end this series with a history teacher you wish you'd had at school, and one of my personal favourites, Simon Seabag Montefiore. His speciality is based around Russian history, but in his book Written in History, Letters That Changed the World, Montefiore has selected some of his favourite correspondents. Contributors range from kings and queens to ordinary people, including Frida Kahlo, Elizabeth I, Mandela, Stalin, Gandhi, Picasso, Fanny Burney, Donald Trump, and many more. There's a letter for every mood. If you want to be inspired, to laugh, to feel passionate, or even if you're in the mood to believe that everything is futile, pointless and miserable, these letters will leave you with a lasting impression. Montefiore reads some of his favourites with Hannah McInnes at Hay Festival 2019. Enjoy. Um, I love letters. Letters are... Uh, nothing really beats the, 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 the authenticity, the immediacy the electric life of a letter. And um, a letter is a, is a sort of moment frozen in time. There's a truth in letters, even though, of course, you know, the writer of letters can lie as much as they like, and many of these letters are filled with appalling lies, as you'll see. Um, the fact is, um, they represent a, a moment in time. I think Goethe called it you know, the immediate spark of life, the immediate breath of life. And that's what's lovely about letters. And in all my books from from the Romanovs and Jerusalem and Catherine the Great onwards, I've used um, huge correspondences, whether it's between Peter the Great and his, and his mistress or Alexander II and his mistress. I've used, I've used these, co- these correspondences between friends and lovers and political partners. And so my publisher said to me, you know, what, you've, you've used so many correspondences. Do you have some favorites that you can um, put in? Would you like to do a book of them? And I said, I'd, I'd absolutely love to. And to anthologize, to curate an anthology like this is just a great pleasure. And what I wanted it to be, as you said, you know, these are letters of, you know, of, of love, death, um, power, uh, everything. All human drama is in these letters. Uh, medicine, creativity, art, artistry. And what I wanted to do was to make sure that the whole of human drama was played out in a sort of delicatessen of words that you can dip into, you can read it from cover to cover, or you can just open it somewhere, and hopefully there'll be something in here that will horrify or delight you. Right, so some, I, some of these letters, as you said, Hannah, I discovered in the archives. Like, for example, you know, the Stalin's letters, correspondence with his daughter, Svetlana Stalin. Um, and they're kind of fun, because, you know, what do you do when you're the seven-year-old daughter of the dictator of Russia um, at the height of the terror? Um, you pretend to be dictator of Russia yourself. And so you can imagine my delight when I was working in the archives, in, in the Russian archives, in Stalin's papers, and I found that they brought me a, um, a, a font, a, a file that was a collection of Svetlana's letters to Stalin. And what, Stalin, what Svetlana used to do, aged eight or seven, was, was pretend to be the rule of Russia. So the letters go um, from Svetlana Stalin, aged eight, um, first Secretary of the Communist Party, uh, Marshal of the Soviet Union, and all this stuff, to the Politburo, Comrade Stalin, Molotov, Beria, etc. Um, I hereby order 
that all homework in the Soviet Union should be, should be abolished for one year. And amazingly, um, Stalin would sign this, and he'd sign things in quite a humorous way. So a lot of them said stuff like, agreed, your humble and obedient peasant, Stalin. <laughs> and, and all the Politburo would sign them as well, and then they'd be stuck on the fridge in Stalin's, um, in Stalin, uh, in Stalin's apartment. So that's kind of fun. On the other hand, there are letters in here which are very well known, um, international public letters, like the blank check that we might discuss later. Um, some of these letters are private. Some of them are extremely private. And some of them, um, and many of them were sort of really designed never to be read by another person. So let's, let's come to, to some of the letters. I know you're going to read some. Let's start with love. Yeah. Um, I know that one of the letters in there that's extraordinary is the letter from Frida Kahlo to her husband um, and their sort of slightly tempestuous relationship that they had, Diego Rivera. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that letter, when it was written, the exchange between them, what it showed yeah. about them, and perhaps read us some of Well, I think, I, th I, I mean, this is one of my favorite letters. I love Frida Kahlo. I, I'm sure you all know her, her, her beautiful art. I mean, you may say, why on earth is Frida Kahlo in a book of letters that changed the world? But actually, you know, this is also about the sort of sensibility of, 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 of the world, the sensibilities, the cultural life of the world. And I think, you know, Frida Kahlo really was the first superstar uh, female artist. And she really kind of created the template of how, you know, great artists could be, great painters could be women as well. And of course, she had the most extraordinary life. She, um, she was half Jewish, half, half Mexican, um, with a lot of indigenous, um, indigenous Mexican blood. So she was a sort of amazing mixture of European and American. Um, she suffered a terrible accident as a young girl where she was in a bus crash and her body was kind of shattered. A, a, an iron girder from the bus actually went through her womb and out of her vagina. And she most, it was amazing that she didn't die, but she was in agony all her life. She couldn't have children and she had to wear corsets and undergo terrible uh, medieval tortures. And yet um, she remained a kind of incredible, life-loving, libertine, um, she had love affairs with Josephine Baker. She had love affairs with Trotsky. Um, and she married the greatest Mexican artist, um, Diego Rivera. And I love her letters because they, they, they're just rather like her paintings, rich, um, rich uh, and, and golden and multicolored. Um, listen to this. This is one of them. It has no punctuation, by the way. It's just, it's just all in small letters. Diego, nothing compares to your hands. Nothing like the green gold of your eyes. My body is filled with you for days and days. You are the mirror of the night, the violent flash of lightning, the dampness of the earth. The hollow of your armpits is my shelter. My fingers touch your blood. All my joy is to feel life spring from your flower mountain that mine keeps to fill all the paths of my nerves, which are yours. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Who wouldn't like mine receiving that? <laughs> you know. I'm going to move on to another love letter. And we're back to Stalin. Yeah. Um, and as you say, that these letters really reveal extraordinary sides of people's characters. And this particularly does. It's not the future tyrant that we came to know. T no. Tell us a bit about well, this letter. This is, this is young Stalin. And I wrote a book about young Stalin, um, who was really the opposite of what Trot Trotsky said, you know, he missed the revolution. He was the preeminent mediocrity of his time. 
In fact, he'd had an amazingly adventurous life um, before the revolution. He'd had many, you know, he'd, he, obviously he was a fanatical Marxist. That was the key thing to understand about Stalin. But to do that, he'd also, you know, led bank robberies and held up ships with, and um, had people assassinated and written articles and, 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 and led this most extraordinary love, love life as well with many mistresses as he kind of lived the life of a secret revolutionary in the underworld. And this is one of those letters, one of the few letters to, to, to survive. In 1912, he was having an affair with a young schoolgirl who was 18. He was, in his late, he was in his 30s. And he was sharing her with another comrade. So it was a kind of strange menage a trois. And the, the comrade was Peter. So this is, the, this is a letter he sent. And he sent a um, postcard with that Rodin sculpture of the kiss, which you all know, I'm sure. And on the back, he wrote this. Dear PG, I got your letter today. Don't write to the old address since none of us are there anymore. I owe you a kiss for the kiss passed on to me by Peter. <laughs> Let me kiss you right now. I'm not simply sending a kiss, but I'm kissing you passionately because it's not worth kissing any other way, Joseph. <laughs> so, and just, just while we're on the subject of... Um, most powerful men in the world and their love lives. I just want to read you. Can I read you the, Can I read a little bit of this one by Solomon the Magnificent? Please do. Because this is also rather a fa my favourite. This is between Solomon the Magnificent. You've got to remember, in the, in the 1530s, Solomon the Magnificent was the equivalent of the President of the United States now. I mean, the Ottoman Empire reached from Libya to the borders of Iran, from Bosnia and the from Vienna, from the borders of Vienna, um, uh, right across um, to the Crimea. Um, it was just, the, it was a vast empire with half of Europe, almost half Europe in, in, under its control. And um, Solomon Magnificent fell in love with one of his slave girls who was born um, the daughter of, a, of an Orthodox priest. And she was called, Ro she was nicknamed Roxolana, which means kind of red-haired Russian girl. And he gave her the name Hurem, which means joyful one. And they had this amazing correspondence. And this is just one of his, one of his poems to her. And again... You've got to imagine you're receiving this yourself. Throne of my lonely niche, my wealth, my love, my moonlight, my most sincere friend, my confidant, my very existence, my sultan, the most beautiful among the most beautiful, my springtime, my merry-faced love, my daytime, my sweetheart, my laughing leaf, my plants, my sweet, my rose, the only one who does not distress me in the world, my Istanbul, the earth of my Anatolia, my Baghdad, my Khorasan, the woman of the beautiful hair, my love of the slanted brow, I, lover of the tormented heart, Mohibi of the eyes full of tears, you make me happy. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I love that, and, and, and there are many more love letters, and we're going to move on, sticking with the theme of Stalin, I think, to that extraordinary letter, I think possibly one of my favourites in the book. Oh, yeah. Another letter which Stalin himself received yes. from Tito. Yeah. Uh, tell everyone about, about that. Well, this is, this is just an interesting one, because Stalin kept, Stalin kept very few letters, but the ones he kept, he sent to his archive. But three, two or three letters he kept in his safe, in his in his office, I mean, they were found there when he died. So they made a big impression on him. And this is one of those letters. 
And what happened was, as you know, you know, the Red Army had liberated Eastern Europe and taken Berlin and taken down Hitler in 1945. Hitler and um, Stalin had, had created an empire that was bigger than the Tsars had ever dreamed of. And he expected absolute uh, obedience from his vassals in Eastern Europe. But one of them defied him, and that was Joseph Tito, Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia. And so by 1948, there was a major schism between these two, and Tito was, was refusing to obey Stalin's orders. So Stalin always had a solution to this sort of problem. And the solution was always, he, he, just, he always described it very simply. He said, one man, one problem, no man, no problem. So, so he sent, he decided to have, he ordered Tito's assassination. But his, 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 um, his campaign to assassinate Tito didn't go well. And after a bit, he received this letter. And this is from, T this is from Tito to Stalin, 1948. Here goes. Stop sending people to kill me. <laughs> we've, we've already captured five of them. One of them with a bomb and another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I'll send a very fast-working one to Moscow. And I certainly won't have to send another. <laughs> yeah, I think that one deserves... Yeah, it's a good one. It's fantastic. Um, and he didn't send any more? He didn't send any more. And, of course, Tito lived till the 80s. Um, <laughs> survived. He didn't send any more. And he kept the letter in his safe. So when he died, it was there. And it, was just, it's just, it made a deep impression. He was... A, he was the only person to ever defy Stalin like that. It's extraordinary, as you say, I think, in the introduction and in the letters of Stalin, you see these very different sides of characters through their letters. Um, and we move on to creativity, which is a yeah. big theme in your book, and the sort of torment of creativity. And someone who you see a really different or a very new side to is Michelangelo when he's yes. painting the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. Um, he writes to his friend about the pain that it's causing him, physical pain. Yes. Have you got that I might have page? it somewhere. I, I, I'm sure I have it marked, but it's a great letter. And I'll tell you why, because those of you, I'm sure most of you have been to the Sistine Chapel, but you'll know that the vault, the roof, is, I don't know, 60 feet above the, above the floor. And so when he received the commission from Julius II, Pope Julius II, to, to paint this, I mean, you've got to remember, first of all, like, it had to be painted upside down, and he had to build a scaffolding that high, climb up it every day, and then lie on his back to paint that amazing ceiling. Uh, but secondly, he wasn't actually a painter. And he regarded himself as a sculptor. And he, he, he hadn't, you know, he had painted, of course he'd painted, but he wasn't primarily a painter. So it was a very strange commission in a way. And so um, it, took him, it took him a long time to paint in 1508 when he was given the job. And he wrote to one of his best friends, he, you know, Michelangelo, was truly the Renaissance man. He wasn't, just, he wasn't just a sculptor, he was an architect, he was a painter, and he was a wonderful poet. And this is, this is, a sort of, this is written as sort of poetry, this letter. And um, it's to a friend, and you'll see, creating, creating a masterpiece is not always easy. I've already grown a goiter from this torture, swollen up here like a cat from Lombardy, or anywhere where the stagnant water is poison. My stomach's quashed, squashed under my chin. My beard's pointing at heaven. My brain's crushed in a casket. My breast twists like a harpy's. 
My brush, above me all the time, dribbles the paint on my face to make a fine floor for droppings. My haunches are grinding into my guts. My poor ass strains to work as a counterpoint. Every gesture I make is blind and aimless. My skin hangs loose below me. My spine's all knotted from folding over itself. I'm, I'm bent taut as a Syrian bow. And because I'm like this, my thoughts are crazily perfidious tripe. Anyone shoots badly through a crooked windpipe. My painting is dead. Defend it for me, Giovanni. Protect my honor. I'm not in the right place. I'm not a painter. <laughs> that theme of great art that's not realized also comes through quite a lot, uh, I think, in, in other letters of creativity. And there's one that you have in here where T.S. Eliot writes to Orwell um, a letter yes. of rejection, perhaps the most foolish, when looking back at it, letter yeah. of rejection he ever sent. Tell, tell people a little bit about that. Well, this is a bit like turning down the Beatles. Um, you know, uh, Orwell was a journalist. In the, at the time he, he wrote this book, um, he was in 1944, he was a journalist who'd, started, who'd also written novels. And T.S. Eliot was, was, also the, um, was also the publisher, was also an editor at um, Faber and Faber. And so Orwell had this brilliant idea of, of writing a political satire, Animal Farm. And T.S. Eliot, very, very, very um, sort of supercilious, writes a very supercilious rejection. And any of you who've ever written a book or, or known the feeling of rejection, um, this is very familiar. Dear Orwell, I know you wanted a quick decision about Animal Farm, but the minimum is two directors' opinions, and that can't be done in under a week. But for the importance of speed, I've asked the chairman to look at it as well. We agree that it's a distinguished piece of writing, that the fable is very skillfully handled and the narrative keeps one's interest on its own plane. And that is something very few authors have achieved. On the other hand, we have no conviction that this is the right point of view from which to criticize the political situation. Now, I think my own dissatisfaction with this apologue is the effect is simply one of negation. It ought to excite some sympathy with what the author wants, as well as sympathy with his objections to something. And the positive point of view, which I take to be generally Trotskyite, is not convincing. I think you split your vote without getting any compensating stronger adhesion from either party. After all, your pigs are more intelligent than the other animals, and therefore the best qualified to run the farm. In fact, there couldn't have been an animal farm at all without them. So what was needed, some might argue, was not more communism, but more public-spirited pigs. <laughs> I'm very sorry, because whoever publishes this will naturally have the opportunity of publishing your future work, and I have a regard for your work. Miss Sheldon will be sending you the manuscript under separate cover. So hindsight in so many of these things is yes. a fine thing. Yes. Um, and now we're going to move uh, sort of a very different theme, but creation to destruction, really. Yeah. You have an extraordinary letter in there. I know you can't read it all. It's, it's a long letter, but I'm sure people who don't know will be fascinated to hear that Gandhi wrote to Hitler during yes. that war, calling him dear friend. Yeah. Um, can you Let's perhaps see. tell us a little bit about the context well, of that letter? I think this is a very interesting letter because, um, first of all, you don't ever think of Gandhi and um, Hitler in, in correspondence. And it wasn't a correspondence because, of course, Hitler never replied. But Gandhi wrote to Hitler, 
One of the interesting things about it is, one sense, it's, you know, I, I wanted to have writers, letter writers in this from, from all, every single, all the, all the worlds, if you like. And so it's wonderful to, we've got some Indian um, emperors, we've got, we've got Gandhi. Um, in another way, it's a breathtakingly naive and gauche letter from a, from a great and wonderful man, because it's written in 1940. And you can see that Gandhi really doesn't see that much difference between Hitler and the British Empire, which, of course, he's, he's opposing at that time as he canvasses for independence for India. And he, he places the two on a sort of plane, trying to be tactful. But given what was about to happen in World War II, it now reads somewhat, somewhat it's, it's a little bit childish. But it starts like this. It's from December 1940, and it says... Dear friend, that I address you as a friend is no formality. I own no foes. My business in life has been for the last 33 years to enlist the friendship of the whole of humanity by befriending mankind, irrespective of race, color, or creed. I hope you will have the time and the desire to know how a good portion of humanity who have been living under the influence of that doctrine of universal friendship view your actions. We have no doubt about your bravery or your devotion to your fatherland, nor do we believe that you are the monster described by your opponents. But your own writings and pronouncements and those of your friends and admirers leave no room for doubt that many of your acts are monstrous and unbecoming of human dignity, especially in the estimation of men like me who believe in universal friendliness. Such are your humiliation of Czechoslovakia the rape of Poland, and the swallowing of Denmark. I'm aware that your view of life regards such spoliations as virtuous acts, but we have been taught from childhood to regard them as acts degrading humanity. Hence, we cannot possibly wish success to your arms. But ours is a unique position, because we resist British imperialism no less than Nazism. Interesting. I want to um, come back, unfortunately, to, to war and one of the most heartbreaking letters in the book, but I think we agreed that we would try and have some variety so there was a little bit yes. of colour and, and sort of light in between. And I know one of your favourite letters is this strange exchange. It's in your se section that you call Liberation. Okay. Um, and between Simon Bolivar oh, yeah. um, and Manuela Sanz and yeah. also her husband, James Thorne. It's a lovely yeah. little comment on sort of Britishness. And, yes, um, yes. Well, Bolivar is, you know, one of the giant characters of world history who's kind of strangely ignored in, because we only start to study Tudors and Stuarts here, as you know, and, and World War II. So, um, so we know very little about um, South American history, which, we, which, which is something we should, I'm trying to sort of correct a little bit. And Bolivar was, apart from Napoleon, was the greatest man of his time. He conquered about eight countries in South America, Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, um, and so on, and, and Panama, amazing achievement, all by the force of arms. Of course, he was an egomaniac. He liked to describe himself as the genius of the storm. And he was an amazingly sort of glamorous figure um, who loved sort of, who loved women. He said he, got his all, he said he got his best political ideas when he was dancing with beautiful women. Um, but when he was, while he was conquering um, uh, Ecuador, he met the beautiful Manuela Science, who was a married, young married woman in her aged about 20, who was married to a very boring English merchant who was about 25 years older than her. 
and she fell in love with Bolivar. She gave herself to him. And then he sent her a letter, um, which probably many of us have either re received or sent ourselves, um, asking for a bit of space. And so he wrote, he wrote this letter, and I'm going to give you her answer in a second. Bolivar to Manuela, 1822. I want to answer, most beautiful Manuela, your demands of love, which are entirely reasonable. But I have to be candid with you, you who have given so much of yourself to me. It's time you knew that long ago I loved another woman, as only young love can. Out of respect, I never talk about it. Now I'm pondering these things, and I want to give you time to do the same. Because your words leer me, because I know this may well be my moment to love you and for us to love one another, but hence I need time to get used to this. For I'm a military man, and a military life is neither easy to endure nor easy to leave behind. I have fooled death so many times now that death dogs my own every step. Allow me to be sure of myself, of you. I cannot lie. I never lie. My passion for you is wild and you know it. Just give me time. <laughs> the Manuela wasn't going to have any of this. So she writes, I can I yes, read her please. letter? So she, she writes back and she decides to solve this problem in a very clever way. She writes a letter to her husband, um, which would make sure that he never took her back. And she sent a copy of it to Bolivar, which made sure that he realized that he was going to get her back, whether he wanted her back or not. And this is the letter she sends to her husband, James Thorne, English merchant. No, 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 hombre. A thousand times no. Sir, you are an excellent person, indeed one of a kind that I will never deny. I only regret that you are not a better man, so that my leaving you would honor Bolivar more. I know very well I can never be joined to him in what you call honor of marriage. Do you think I'm any less honorable because he is my lover, not my husband? Ah, I do not live by social conventions men construct to torment us. So leave me be, my dear Englishman. We will marry again in heaven, but not on this earth. <laughs> on earth, you are a boring man. <laughs> Up there in the celestial heights, everything will be so English. Because, because a life of monotony was invented for you people. You English people who make love without pleasure, conversation without grace, who walk slowly, greet solemnly, move heavenly, joke without laughing. But enough of my cheekiness. With all sobriety, truth, and clarity of an English woman, I say now, I will never return to you. You are a Protestant, and I am a pagan. But I'm also in love with another man, Bolivar. <laughs> you see how precise my mind can be, your invariable friend, Manuela. <laughs> That one is a real, real gem that just... God forbid one ever receives one of those. <laughs> this woman seems a brilliant defier of convention. Um, so I said something lighthearted before, I'm afraid, back to war. And I think possibly the most heartbreaking letter 
of the book, which is the letter from the camps. And I think it's very rare that you write to find um, these letters. Yes, I'm just going to try and find it. It wherever. is. Which section is it in? In family, and it's on page 35. Oh, yeah, 35. Yeah, I mean, this is a very unusual letter because um, it's actually from within a death camp in 1944. So, obviously... Let many letters did survive from the Holocaust, but most of them were, were from the work camps, the labor camps, in, say, the Birkenau complex, the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex. But this is actually from within the death camp. And it represents, just in these about very few lines, these eight lines or so, um, just one of the human tragedies of World War II, because um, the Grunwald family from the, were a Czech Jewish family. They arrived at Auschwitz in 44. And there were two children, two parents and the two children. The two children, one was handicapped and one was not. When they went, arrived at the selection um, at Auschwitz, Mengele, the, the angel of death, Dr. Mengele sent the handicapped boy to the straight to be gassed and sent the parents and the other son, Misha, to the, de to the, to the labor camp to survive. And of course, this is every parent's dilemma from hell, this, a diabolical choice, really, like, Sophie's, like the novel Sophie's Choice a little bit. And, of course, the mother chose to go with the son to the, de to the death, even though she'd been chosen to live. Um, and when she was in there, amazingly, she had a pen and paper, and she managed to write a letter. She managed to give it to one of the capos, who was um, one of the trustees who were working in the camp, and the, he actually managed to get it later to her husband, who kept it for the whole last, the last year of the war and gave it to the Holocaust Museum. And this is the letter she wrote to them. You, my only one, dearest, in isolation were waiting for darkness. We considered the possibility of hiding, but decided not to do it since we felt it would be hopeless. The famous trucks were already here and were waiting for it to begin. I'm completely calm. You, my only and dearest one, do not blame yourself for what has happened. It's our destiny. We did what we could. Stay healthy and remember my words that time will heal. We'll heal. If not completely, then at least partially. Take care of the little golden boy and don't spoil him too much with your love. Both of you, stay healthy, my dear ones. I will be thinking of you and Misha. Have a fabulous life. We must board the trucks. Into eternity, Filmer. So, amazing letter, heartbreaking. How did you find that letter? Um, it's it's in. Um, uh, I didn't find that in an archive. It's it's printed in a book somewhere. But it's, I think it's one of it's one of the most touching letters um, from the Holocaust. And you know, I just think it's just like, the, it's, it's, I mean, apart from anything else, it's absolutely heartbreaking, but it's also beautifully written, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's masterful in its neatness and its laconic um, style, not over-emotional and yet all the more emotional for that. So in some ways, it's a, it's a literary masterpiece as well as a, just a moment of, of the great tragedy of the 20th century. Um, and s some of the themes and some of the things you explore sit neatly in history, but I know that others of them are deeply pertinent to today. Perhaps, sort of sadly, um, the most of those is the one from Emile Zola. Yes, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, again... Uh, yes, I've, I, you're right. I, I mean, I've chosen... 
I've put in Emil Zola's Jacques talking of anti-Semitism um, today, and I, originally I wouldn't have I wouldn't have put that letter letter in this book, um, but at the last minute, I just looking at what's happening in England at the moment, I thought the Dreyfus affair is actually fairly relevant today, um, with what's happening with in the Labour Party, um, in the Corbyn in, in Corbyn's Labour Party. And it's, it's, and it's a very strange time, and I never thought this time would, would come. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm Jewish myself, and we were brought up that, you know, really kind of the great evil of anti-Semitism had really ended in 1945. And I now realize what's happening. I don't know how closely you're following this, but I now realize that we're going to have to fight for all the, the decent values that we thought had, had been won. We're going to have to fight for them all over again, one by one. And what we're seeing today is anti-Semitism is kind of, is, you know, is, per, is pervasive now um, in a certain part of the, of the far left, which has, in effect, taken over the Labour Party. It's become the octopus of octopuses, um, you know, a sort of bacteria that explains everything, the conspiracy of conspiracies in an age of conspiracy. And so this letter that Zola wrote to the president of France um, really attacks, um, attacks anti-Semitism and, um, and revealed the, you know, the, 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 the cruelties and the injustice of the great Dreyfus affair of the 1890s. But it's a very long letter. I don't think I should read that one. No, I mean, it's, it's obviously just shows extraordinary moral outrage that you could it's imagine. It's the moral outrage. And I think, you know, we're going to need a Zola. We may need a Zola in England, you know. Um, we've, got, we've got tough times ahead in many, many different ways, not just with Brexit, but also with public morality here, with, you know, this anti-Semitism is a sort of, is a litmus test for a civilized society. And at the moment, I feel we're failing it. So um, for Jewish people and for people who care about decency and civilization, we're living in dangerous times and we must not be quiet about that, I think. And I think we must, we must protest and fight it all the way. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Series 5 of the Hay Festival podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a rating or tell a friend about us. You can join us live in Hay from the 26th of May to the 5th of June. And if you can't make it in person, details about events that will be live streamed will be on our website very soon. This podcast was presented by me, Poppy Evans. I will be back with you at the beginning of June with some exciting new podcast episodes. See you then.